When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate Sports Podcast. Hang up and listen for the week of September 15th, 2014. On this week's show, we'll assess the popular uprising against the NFL and Commissioner Roger Goodell, how the Ray Rice affair has been covered by the NFL press, and what to make of the Adrian Peterson child abuse case. We'll discuss the U.S. men's basketball team's romp through the FIBA Basketball World Cup, and whatever happened to the rest of the world catching up the United States in basketball. We'll also chat with SB Nation's John Boyce, the crazed genius behind Breaking Madden, a voyage to the ends of the video game universe in which Jadavion Clowney set the career sack record in a single game, and the Jaguars are quarterbacked by a man known as Clarence Beef Tank. That's all, all capital letters. Mm. And in our segment for Slate Plus members, we'll talk about Robert Griffin III's latest injury and what it means for the Washington quarterback's future. Joining me in Washington, D.C. is Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic, and the Friday sports correspondent for NPR's All Things Considered. And apparently you're the new uh, head of the Swedish government. Congratulations, Stefan. Thank you. What's his last name? Stefan. Oh, uh, it's not Fats. It's not Fats. That's okay. I was on uh, Peter Schrager's podcast, and he referred to you as Stefan Fatsis. Wow. <laughs> he went with the Greek last name pronunciation, Fatsis. Yeah. And yeah. he went with the Swedish first name <laughs> pronunciation. But he remembered you. He's just doing it from memory. I give well, him credit. Yeah, it's hard from memory. It's Lofvin. Lofvin? He's going to start a coalition. It's not quite set, but Stefan Lofvin. As I pointed out, coalition. I'd like to know how many Joshes or Mikes are running countries. 
Only in the most enlightened countries. We can say that. We can stipulate that from the jump. Does Mikhail Gorbachev count? Someday there will be a Josh, president of the United States. <laughs> yeah, I don't know I think about back that. in Jericho days. There'll be a Josh, you know. why not? But he'll go by Joshua. Right. I think we like to separate ourselves from the political process. We like to stand apart. We're too What was the name of the president on the West Wing? Uh, Josiah Bartlett or something? Jebediah. Jebediah. Yes, I think so. (laughs) Jeremiah. It was a J. J. I don't know. It wasn't John or Jack. Uh, Hey, it's Mike Pesca with us in New York, host of Slate's daily podcast, The Gist with Mike Pesca. Uh, Mike, we're just teaching our producer what a hot take is. Yeah. How How could he not even know? I don't know. He's the producer of a sports podcast. Does... This is an outrage. I've been talking about this for weeks, that Mike Volo does not know what a hot take is. This idea that somehow the guy could purport to be the producer of a show and not know what a hot, <laughs> hot take is. You know He's what? got his spend hand a, on that little like bar spend thing a little on the less, Maybe he should spend a little less time in Lexicon Valley and a little more time doing his job. Mike, Mike, I'm going to come right out and say it. I know this isn't going to be popular with a lot of people, but I'm going to come right out and say it. Mike Volo, you got some work to do. You got some work to do. Mike Volo, I'm saying it right here, right now. You need to make that catch. (laughs) You got to make that play. If you're a producer on a podcast, you got to make that play. You got to make that play. In the MMQB on Monday morning, I would say that Peter King is known for lukewarm takes. I would also call him the font of NFL conventional wisdom. When you've lost King, you've lost America. Although in this case, Peter King hasn't really decided whether he's been lost or not. <laughs> he's like, you know what? Make up your own mind if you like the NFL or not. But the first sentence of depend, his column depend was... Depend which month you read him in. The, the first sentence of his column was, so, should we still like football? Question mark. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, he called this past week the most ceaselessly miserable one I've seen in my 31 seasons covering the league. Uh, he talks about all the injuries to star players on the field, leagues and mission in federal court that one in three retired players will develop long-term cognitive problems. That one kind of slid under the radar a little bit this week. Um, the news that Adrian Peterson abused his four-year-old child, the continued reverberations of the Ray Rice elevator video, and the NFL's pathetic excuses for failing to act on it in an appropriate or timely fashion. Now, onto the games where the Bears scored three touchdowns in the fourth quarter to upset the 49ers. No, just kidding. Uh, we have a lot more information, Stefan, than we did this time last week when the Rice video had just come out. Um, three questions, I think, that are still top of mind for everyone who's been following this are, what did the NFL know? When did they know it? Were they lying about having the video? What should happen to Commissioner Goodell? And what should NFL teams do with players like Ray Rice, Adrian Peterson, and Greg Hardy? Uh, the latter two, the Vikings and Panthers, respectively took those players off the active rosters for the week um, after Peterson's child abuse charges. And uh, Carolina, it seems, was finally swayed by the uproar over Hardy continuing to play after being convicted of domestic abuse. So I think neither of those things, maybe the Peterson, but I think the Hardy thing definitely would not have happened if not for the Rice video. We've seen um, teams change their behavior, and we've seen the conversation around the league obviously change, and it's not just a blip. We're having the same conversation this week as we should be. So what is your assessment for of any of those questions, wherever you want to take this um, kind of a week later? I'm going to first defer to Mike Pesca because his spiel on the gist last Thursday, I think it was, Mike? I did it two days in a row about this topic, yeah. I had a couple. 
One was one was quantitative. One was angry. The quantitative. Well, you know, one was quantitative and angry. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> one was angrier. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think what we're seeing here is sort of a classic in corporate reaction and corporate ass covering in crisis management and not a good one. I mean, everything has been reactive here. I mean, we, when you, you mentioned Greg Hardy, Jerry Richardson, the owner of the Carolina Panthers, stood up at some award ceremony. He was receiving an award against indifference. and <laughs> An award against indifference? Yes, for not being indifferent. Well, he showed yeah. up, so obviously he was he not just, was, was G- deserving, Goodell deserving of that Goodell was supposed to show up to present him the award, I believe, and he did not for obvious reasons because he had already appeared indifferent for much of the week. And he wept, and he didn't mention Greg Hardy, and a couple of days later, the Panthers deactivated him for Sunday's game. I mean, what does that mean? I mean, this is all reactive. Everything is reactive here. I mean, the the NFL has been exposed as a reactive organization and Goodell's management style, and not only in the Rice case, but if you look at the Bounty case, if you look at Vic, if you look at Roethlisberger, uh, Alan Schwartz did a, did a nice job of summing up a lot of these issues in the New York Times this morning in an analysis piece. Every major crisis that Roger Goodell has faced in the last few years, he has responded initially and then either walked back or, in the Rice case, increased the punishment either because he was reacting to public opinion or because enough time had lapsed that he wanted to make amends based on what, in retrospect, is absolutely insufficient evidence that seems to be based on the notion that we want to get back to football, reducing Roethlisberger suspension, reducing Vic's suspension. He trusted them. He listened to them. He reduced their suspensions. In this case, same thing. In In the case of Ray Rice, he reacted by increasing the punishment based on public opinion. So I think the major characteristic that's gone on since the video was released and he was cut from the Ravens and suspended indefinitely, I think the major characteristic is powerful people within the NFL think they are believing they are digging out or setting it right or doing the right thing, but not just not doing enough or not going far enough or not making up for past mistakes, but actually indicting themselves anew in some of their statements. And I don't know how much has actually... Uh, enough attention has been focused on it. And a couple examples of this is all the owners, Goodell, everyone talking about from this point forward, here now, and no one, to my knowledge, going back and saying, oh my God, Jovan Belcher killed his girlfriend. How could we not have had the conversation then? How could these leaders who we brought in after the Ray Rice suspension, the original two-game suspension, to address that? How did we not bring in these women rights activists and male activists and people who knew about the issue? How did we not do that? I've not seen any accounting of process. If I had one word to say about how the NFL needs to reform itself, and maybe it doesn't, you know, I'm just saying how they should do it if they want want to do the right thing, not the thing that makes everyone forget and everyone make millions and the football loving public go back to just loving football. I'm saying if they want to do the right thing, what they need to do is an accounting of what went wrong. And it needs to start with the process of how they interviewed Janae Palmer. I have not heard anyone say that was totally wrong to have her in the room. I've not heard anyone address the fact that how could you not have known that he knocked her out. It, he said it, and it was in the police report. When Goodell did his interview on CBS with Nora O'Donnell, I think that was the only, I mean, that was the only one outside of NFL circles. That might have been the only interview he did. Correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, he talked cut, to USA Today to Christine Brennan. Okay, so that was the only broadcast interview. 
O'Donnell did a good job, but she did not nail him on the fact when he said, I didn't know what happened. Wait, how could you not have known? Even though it wasn't on the tape, it was written in the record. And the biggest thing that they need to do and go back is to talk about what is the process for punishment? Because the entire dynamic of him being the law is terrible and it's flawed. And I think he sees everything. And I do think the other owners see, the owners probably just see things in dollars and cents. I think he sees everything associated with a job as either lenient or strict, lenient or strict. And that's ridiculous. He has to get out of that business. They have to put in place an actual process that's divorced from Goodell himself. And by the way, this indefinite suspension, sorry, I know it's popular. I know President Obama's spokesman said we all think it's right. It's not right because the stated policy is six games and there's no logical reason written down on paper to give him a year. And if you're doing what needs to be done was to have a real process rather than the whims of one man, you have to have a process. Well, I think so much of this should be on the teams. And as we've seen with the Ravens, cutting rice, the Panthers making the decision to deactivate Hardy, the Vikings making the decision to deactivate Peterson. They're on the front lines here. They can make a decision that they don't want this player representing their franchise, either in the short term or the long term. And I agree with you that when Goodell is the one meeting out the punishment, that's going to lead to a huge number of problems, as we've already seen in so many of the cases um, that we've talked about. As far as having Palmer in the room, I think that you're right, that that was a, a... completely fucked up process and that the NFL should be called out for it. But, you know, not having her in the room, I'm not sure would have made that much of a difference based on what we know about domestic violence. And I think because the mindset of the guys who would have her in the room is not the mindset. It's not going to change with her in the room. Exactly. So regarding domestic abuse, I think we're asking the NFL in some ways to do a better job than the rest of society, uh, because this is not this is a crime that's not prosecuted as much as it should be, because the legal system, along with the NFL, does not understand that the traditional victim perpetrator model doesn't work. If you know the legal system doesn't recognize that victims often don't come forward because they're scared and they give too much credence to claims that a boyfriend is going to change or fiance is you know different or we're getting married so everything's okay. So I'm asking the NFL. I think we're all asking the NFL to do a better job than the rest of society does, but I'm not asking the NFL to do a better job than everyone else should do. Um, But I think that we expect too much of them, that they are a reactive organization. They're not ever going to do anything better than the rest of society does. They're going to fall back on due process. You know, Jim Harbaugh is going to say he has no tolerance for domestic abuse. And then when, you know, it comes time to decide whether Ray McDonald is going to be on the active roster, he's going to say, well, we'll just let the legal system, you know, Jed York, the CEO of the 49ers, go, I'm going to take a lot of hits for this, but I'm just going to let due process play out. But due process doesn't work when it comes to domestic abuse in the U.S. And you can put them on paid leave. There are examples in the NFL of this being done differently for players you haven't heard of, specifically because they're players you haven't heard of. The Vikings cut this cornerback, A.J. Jefferson, accused of strangling his girlfriend. They cut him three hours after he was arrested because you haven't heard of him and he's not Greg Hardy. He's not making all that money because he's a great player. So teams have shown that they can use more like a preponderance of evidence standard and say, you know what? There's a police report that says this woman has bruises and strangulation marks on her. Maybe this guy shouldn't play. Um, It's only the due process part only comes into effect when the roster spot is too valuable because the guy was a high draft pick 
or he was an all-pro. This, this is conflating. What the NFL does and what other leagues do is they conflate interests. On a narrow level, it's what's the interest of the team? The interest of the team is winning, and this belief creeps in that we need to have a player on a roster no matter what um, until it becomes impossible to sustain that. On a league level the interests that get conflated are money versus image. And in this case, the image of the NFL has been brutalized. I mean, it has been been destroyed in some regards. And I think some people believe that is the case. And the question is, what responsibility does a leader have? Regardless of what the level of culpability of Roger Goodell personally is, whether he saw this video or didn't see this video, you have to wonder, like, how many gates does a guy get? You know, we've had Spygate and Bountygate, and now we have Ray Rice, and it's been, it has been an endless parade of these sorts of cases under Roger Goodell's tenure. Alan Schwartz in that piece in the New York Times leads with Goodell five years ago sitting in front of Congress and basically lying about what the NFL knows about brain trauma and the risks of it. And we heard a lot this past week about how the owners are going to be reluctant to get rid of Goodell because the revenue of the league has increased so much. Let's not forget that correlation does not imply causation. And regardless of how much money a company makes, it doesn't guarantee an executive's job security. Sometimes it reflects bad performance, duplicity. You could argue that Goodell has perpetuated a lie on consumers by going in front of Congress, for instance, and talking about brain trauma. You know, the tobacco guys all eventually got axed. Incredibly, Roger Goodell has survived and he has not imposed a dramatic overhaul of this business, which is what, as you suggest, Mike, the NFL probably needs here. You know, I want to go back to one thing Josh says, which is that the uh, I, I want to get it right. We can't rely on the NFL for meeting out justice more so than we do society at large. Is that it? I want to get it right. I was talking specifically about domestic violence, about how yeah. when we look at NFL arrest data for domestic violence, that doesn't even capture half of it, because I wrote about Terrell Suggs last week, a guy who had, you know, his girlfriend, then later his wife, That's that seems to be the pattern, you know, takes out these protective orders against him and no charges are ever yes. filed because they get back together. Anyway, the point is this crime is not prosecuted the way it should be by society. So why should we expect the NFL, this reactive organization, to do any better? Mike, feel free to go back and sort of rehash a little bit of what you said on your other program when you randomly looked up domestic violence cases in the NFL, what was it, 2001? Yeah, some of the things I did was I looked at every crime against a woman perpetuated by a NFL player during Goodell's tenure as commissioner. I counted 59. There are about five you could maybe argue shouldn't be in there, like things like indecent exposure to a woman. Maybe, I don't know, but I think that might have had to do with urinating. Anyway, I don't want to get into that. There's maybe 50 or so that you just can't argue with, and that doesn't get into any of the Terrell Suggs or Titus Young or any of the uh, misdeeds against women that never made it to the court. So that's that's 50. And of course, ones that weren't counted. And these databases are just based on what got reported where. So there are definitely guys on the practice squad who, you know, whoever's compiling the database, in this case, San Diego Tribune, never uh, picked up the fact that, you know, maybe he was charged with a crime. So compared it before Goodell's tenure, it seems to, on a per year basis, have gone down, but it's remarkably steady in society and it's pretty much steady. Here's what I think, though. I think that it can be better than society for two reasons. One, there's precedent where a league is harsher or internally punishes more than society does. To wit, marijuana. To wit, Adderall. To wit, 
steroids. Now, maybe it didn't used to be. And also, we get more up in arms about now football players, definitely baseball players, taking performance-enhancing drugs more than we do with the uh, local meathead down at the gym. But the other reason why it can be a little bit better is society is so terrible on this issue. And society is maybe overwhelmed by this issue. And society maybe can't be expected to be progressive on this issue. But the NFL is full of players who make hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. The NFL is full of players who are in the public light. And even though they have pressures, and even though I really do think that brain injuries contribute to um, a lot of the violence that we see out of players. And that has you know, not been have, mentioned this week, by the way. Right. They have so many advantages that you know society at large does not have. I don't think it's unreasonable. Unlike drunk driving, although maybe you could argue that too. Anyone on an NFL team could easily call someone to give them a ride and get it easily. Fine. Let's not even talk about that. I think that with this issue, why shouldn't the NFL just say, you know what, we were so behind, now we're going to be a leader? That would be a fine thing in my estimation. Well, the thing that must be really, really irritating, beyond irritating to the players and the NFL PA is um, the fact that we're talking about the NFL as being full of criminals when, in fact, the issue is that the NFL is not and the teams are not doing the job they need to do to get the small percentage of players who That's are right. criminals right. out of the league so they're not tarring the rest of the guys who are good people and, you know, don't deserve to be lumped in. It's not like the domestic abuse is, like, you know, more rampant in the NFL. You know, 538 got the data. It's, what, 55% of what the rate is for um, people of the same age across society in the NFL. I think that it is a huge problem in the NFL as it is a huge problem in society. But it's not fair to, you know, random player on, you know, the San Diego Chargers to say the NFL is full of domestic abusers. And that, I think, is, you know, another of Goodell and, and the owner's problems here is that they're they're ruining the reputation of, you know, all these good people of in their the league. the whole league. <laughs> unless, unless that random player was Sean Merriman, who did choke. <laughs> Tequila, tequila, charges not pending. Hey, by the way, do you think that if uh, Goodell had given Rice six games and there would have been, well, six games is more than you give. And then the videotape comes out and then everyone says, wow, that was the least you could do. I think Ray Rice would still be on the Ravens. And I think Goodell would be probably a few, nah, probably $20 million richer in pay. He's not going to get a huge paycheck this year. But if he did that decision, he'd be seen as, you know, golden. I want to kind of wrap up, up this segment because I think one of the m most fascinating things that's been going on is um, how the media has chased the story and I think done it incredibly aggressively over the last couple of weeks. And Stefan, you've been looking at this and thinking about it. And I think you can make the analogy that there are a ton of skeletons in the NFL closet. Maybe you had like one or two guys or, you know, men and women trying to pick the lock. And now because there's this sense that this is a huge story, all these news organizations are going after it, including the league's content partners. You have, you know, people on ESPN, on Fox, on CBS, on NBC, making these monologues, James Brown, Hannah Storm, Chris Carter, about how terrible the NFL is and about, um, you know, all these things that need to change. And then you have investigative reporters like ESPN now puts Don Van Natta on the, like, is Goodell lying beat. But all this stuff that the NFL has done, this could have been found out, you know, weeks ago, months ago, years ago, if people had been on this beat. And so what do you make of the fact that it's taken the Rice case to get this kind of aggressive 
posture. Do you think that's fair? Well, I think we've had a lot of aggressive good reporting from other sources on from other outlets um, on other issues, namely brain injuries. I mean, that you know, the brain injuries would not have come to light were it not for Alan Schwartz at the New York Times back in, in 2007 after Andre Waters died. And what broke the lid off of the Rice thing was TMZ, outsider organization mm-hmm. willing to pay money to get a tape. And then the biggest break, I think, of the last week, and, you know, in fairness, ESPN has had a ton of good reporting on this, but the AP reporting, getting the anonymous law enforcement source saying that the league got the tape in April, and they had the voicemail from somebody in the league office saying, man, we got this tape, and it was sure terrible. The one thing I wonder about that might that could change going forward is, look, the NFL's business has been predicated on and buttressed by the kind of reporting that has evolved in the last decade, particularly as social media have risen to power. The kind of a- Adam Schefter sort of granular minutia that has fed fantasy sports and that has fed this cycle that has made the NFL a 24-hour year-round obsession. And that is part of, that's good marketing by the league and the teams to convince consumers and the media that people need this stuff, that people need every last detail about every last move that the league or teams do. And what I wonder going forward is whether there will be a dose of skepticism and a dose of cynicism injected into some of this coverage, that there might be a step back, that the league's broadcast partners who pay the NFL billions of dollars a year, almost $6 billion a year combined, will become more aggressive in the ESPN style about reporting on the league. Can that change? I don't know. I mean, we'll see. I mean, there's certainly signs that everyone feels a little more comfortable saying the NFL is flawed and, and Roger Goodell's job is threatened. And Adrian Peterson, who we have not really mentioned yet, we just saw this news and we're recording the podcast that the team has put out a statement where they're saying essentially that they deactivated him last week, but they're going to activate him again and he's going to play in week three against the Saints. They say, to be clear, we take very seriously any matter that involves the welfare of a child. At this time, however, we believe this is a matter of due process and we should allow the legal system to proceed so we can come to the most effective conclusions and then determine the appropriate course of action. So, Stefan, they're again talking about due process in a case where perhaps it's not warranted in using that phrase as a crutch. What say you? We read some of the tweets that Peterson apparently sent to this boy's mother. It's hard to conclude that we need you know, due process to fully execute itself before taking some action. And that action, as you mentioned earlier, Josh, could be simply suspending him with pay. Deactivated, he still gets paid pending the investigation into what happened. And if his name was Peter Adriansen, and if he was on the practice squad, we probably would not be having this conversation. No, because he would have been cut. He wouldn't even have the benefit of being paid while due process takes its course. All right. We have a live show to announce uh, October 8th at Galapagos and Brooklyn. Will Roger Goodell still be the NFL commissioner on October 8th? Wait and see. Buy a ticket. Uh, it's part of New York Super Week. If, if he's not, he'll be our guest. <laughs> <laughs> we can guarantee that. Yeah. Uh, New York Super Week, it's an extension of Comic-Con. Um, all NFL commissioners past, present, and future are required to be there. It's part of the job description. They make $44 million a year. Slate.com slash Hangup Super Week 
to buy a ticket. Uh, it's 20 bucks, 30% off for Slate Plus members. Slate.com slash hangup superweek to get that ticket. And a quick additional word about our membership program, Slate Plus. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus. It's just $5 a month. You can get ad-free versions of podcasts, also podcast extras. Uh, this week, Slate Plus members were treated to a video in which our own Mr. Pesca interviewed Julia, Dana, and Steve of the Culture Gab Fest, brought the world the news of the Dana Stevens-John Dickerson musical partnership at the Slate Retreat, all while Mike was wearing khaki shorts. Ah, is that is that now faux, faux pas? It's not. No. No. If they were jorts, <laughs> there would have been a problem. <laughs> I just wanted to give people the sense that, you know, that you'll have a visual component yeah. to this uh, Slate Plus offer. You had jorts at some point in your life, didn't you, Mike? Jean shorts? Never. I, I literally never had jean shorts. I am not victim to bad fashion trends. I am remarkably consistent, which I always applaud myself for. And now I've found that that's called norm core. <laughs> <laughs> to learn more about Pesca's wardrobe. That's right. Uh, more visual confirmation. Same hairstyle since I was seven. Only thing that changed it was the hair itself. <laughs> <laughs> Slate.com slash hangout plus. Of the 15 players on the All-NBA first, second, and third teams last season, 12 were American. I'll give you three seconds to guess how many of those 12 Americans were on the FIBA Basketball World Cup team. I'm going to go zero. No, two. <laughs> two. It's two. Uh, that's why Mike Pasca is the joke. trivia champion. Oh, was it a joke now? Oh, really? Oh, really? Joke. Because it should have been five. Well, Durant. He wasn't on the, the final roster. Durant. Okay. James right. Harden and Steph Curry. We're on the team that that's true. USA Basketball sent to Spain. See, and the guys who just like to score, that's the thing. Guys who play hard in defense, they don't like to play a lot of international basketball. But if you're a scorer, it's like, yeah, I'll play. I get to score more. See, I think of international basketball as sort of a scrappier kind of enterprise. Uh -huh. I foreign think teams of, are we, scrappy. They play some defense. I think of it as we should have an intro. Sorry, Josh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, and yet, he continues, a team led by second-tier NBA players obliterated the field in Spain. They won by 33 per game. Blitz Serbia, 129-92 in Sunday's gold medal game. Kenneth Fareed is great. Kyrie Irving was the MVP. He's great. Harden and Curry, they can score. Anthony Davis, maybe the third best player in the NBA. But it was not supposed to be this easy for this group of Americans. After NBA players were deemed eligible for the Olympics, the U.S. in 92-96 and the 2000 Olympics they dominated. Other teams often seemed most interested in getting the Dream Teamers autographs, posing for pictures. But in the 2002 World Championships, the Americans totally flopped. They finished in sixth. In the 2004 Olympics, they lost to Puerto Rico by 19 points. At the 2006 World Championships, they fell to Theodorus Papaloukas, Vasilis Benoulas, mm -hmm. Stefan Fatsis, Opa. and a bunch of other Greek randos. Wow. Uh, if you look back at stories from that dark period, you'll read that Americans can't shoot they're selfish. They don't right. play fundamental basketball. Fundamentals. Teamwork. It's all about me, me, me. Bad manners. An amazing mm -hmm. 2004 piece for ESPN.com. Chris Broussard wrote that we've lost our grip on the game. Mm -hmm. Our skills are lacking big time. <laughs> mm -hmm. LeBron is going to sign with Cleveland. No, mm -hmm. that, was, that was a joke. And I'm beginning to have serious doubts now that our best NBA teams would beat the best EuroLeague teams, said Mr. Mm -hmm. Broussard. Also Fat implied an anti-gay marriage sentiment. <laughs> Very implicit. Deeply implicit. Fast forward a decade, and the U.S. has now won the last four major international tournaments. Mike, what is your 
assessment with with what's happened in international basketball? I think it's great. I think it's wonderful. And I underscore my support for it with the fact that I did not watch a second of the FIBA World Championship. So I, I said in our sports endorsements last week, last week, I'm really excited for this like <laughs> last phase of it's the World Cup. Like exciting. these are going to be yeah. the exci- exciting yeah. games. Yeah. I was like... You know, on Friday, I think it was, I was like, when is the Lithuania game coming? I really want to watch that, the semifinals. I found it that it had happened the day before. Mm-hmm. I made an effort. <laughs> this was not promoted very well. Yeah, I'm a cable cord cutter. So uh, that was fine with the regular World Cup, you know, the soccer version. There was no Telemundo version of even <laughs> the Spanish team playing of the World this Cup. Is all but it was the Spanish channel's fault. Yeah, you know, if you're going to, even if you have a sports show in a week last, like last week when there was a, a lot of news uh, about our previous subject, I think I'm going to give myself a pass. But I could still pontificate about the global implications, which is to say, what the fuck? What the fuck happened to the Spanish? They're supposed to be so much better. Now, the answers might be revealed had I watched a second of the game, but since I didn't, let me just say, what the fuck? So Esteban Broussard of El País says, <laughs> <laughs> we've lost our grip on the game in Espanol. Nuestros, no, I, I'm not going to try. My Spanish skills okay. are a little rusty. Stefan, what happened to the Greeks? There was this period when... Argentina clearly had this generation of players with Manu Ginobili, um, Luis Scola, Alberto, Pepe Sanchez. We could go on. They won the You can't Olympics. go on. That's it. You've named them all. Go ahead. Pe- did I say Pepe Sanchez? You did say Pepe Sanchez. If Pepe Sanchez were in his name, it would be his nickname. So they won the uh, Olympics in 2004 when the U.S. lost to Puerto Rico awesome. and other teams. And then you had teams like... Lithuania pushing the U.S. Sharunas Yesa Kavishis had a three-pointer to beat them in the 2000 Olympics. You know, you had teams like Greece that didn't have any stars but played well together. And there was this thought that the way that the U.S. was playing was not correct and that our, you know, fundamentals were bad. But is it possible that it wasn't that the gap was closing but just that there was this particular period in international basketball where teams like Argentina in particular, had this, like, unique special group. And it's not like basketball in Argentina is way more popular than soccer. And you have, like, Angel Di Maria and uh, Leo Messi playing basketball from the time they're three. It's just like soccer is still... Leo Messi's, like, five foot two. Yeah, even if they did, that wouldn't have really made a difference. Hey, Berea was the leading scorer in the World Cup, and he's, like, one foot tall. So is it possible that this was just a blip and that we were overreacting? Yes, Absolutely. I mean, it, I, I'm not convinced that it was a blip in terms of what's going on in other countries. I think it was a blip in terms of what was happening in the United States. Emphasis on preparation for these tournaments, understanding that there's a different style of play, kinds of coaching, which players decided to, to participate. I mean, I don't think anyone other than Chris Broussard ever really doubted that if the United States wanted to put a group of, of 12 or 15 players on Carlos a Carlos Delfino. Walter Herrmann. Now you looked those up. <laughs> and that if the United States wanted to put a group of 12 to 15 players on the court to play any group of 12 to 15 players. I disagree. Look back at that time. There was like Joe Poznanski, reasonable Joe Poznanski, said like American parents teach your children how to shoot. 
There was this thought that we were all t- we were turning into a nation of Stefan Marberries, but I think you're right. Who it's... was on the bronze medal 2004 team? Alan Arverson, who was on the bronze medal 2004 team. Carmelo Anthony, who was on the bronze medal hmm. 2004 team. It's like maybe we picked the wrong roster. players. No, sure. no, LeBron and Carmelo and Dwayne Wade run that team too. Let's, let's... LeBron was you know tw- 12, right? He was 19 years old yeah. on that team. Emeka Okafor was on that team. <laughs> this was not a great roster. But that roster was not any uh, worse than the roster that they sent this time. Can we can we look a little bit forward now? Because the reaction to what has happened. <laughs> Why do you want to look here, big picture? We could be talking about Walter Hermann right now. <laughs> the reaction now is that we don't need this anymore. We won every game by twenty one points. Paul George destroyed his leg. It's dangerous. It's a waste of time. Nobody watches it at home. And this is so fantastic to listen to and to read because it repeats everything, of course, that happened in the late 90s and early 2000s, that we don't need this. We shouldn't be playing. And now it's we should turn all of these tournaments into under-22 tournaments. We should shield Adrian our stars. Adrian Wojnarski of Yahoo wrote this column that basically the only – person that this conveys any luster and glory on is Mike Krzyzewski, the coach of Duke. And he, he was right. He had this bizarre That's kind bizarre. of objection to it that Krzyzewski is just in it to get highly recruited players to Duke, which maybe is true, but who gives a crap? Well, he made, I'm, I'm going to respond to that before I move on to the larger point. It, it turned into the like weir- some the larger objection th- about NCAA recruiting. Yeah, and the ahead. weird part of that is, is that he said that Billy Donovan, Shaka Smart, and Tony Bennett were the coaches of the U-19 team, and Krzyzewski shows up to talk to the team, and somehow Krzyzewski is the one yeah. that what has the advantage. What do those other guys do for a living? These, <laughs> somehow Krzyzewski has the advantage just by showing up. They're all going to want to go to Duke, even though they're being right. coached by the coaches of Florida, VCU, and Virginia. I wouldn't want to. That made no sense. All right. Back to the bigger point. So what we're going to do now is view world competition in basketball through the narrowest prism we can, which is the U.S. prism. Because we're much better, we should bring down all the other countries and turn this into a U-22 tournament. And they shouldn't, you know, if we're not going to send our best players, they shouldn't either. You know what? The World Cup and the Olympics, they really matter in the rest of the basketball world. This was a huge deal, as I will discuss in my afterball, for Serbia. This is a country of 7 million people. They won the world championships as the federated whatever of Yugoslavia in 98 and 02. Um, as a friend pointed out to me, Serbia has a 20% unemployment, average annual income of $6,000 to play the United States in the finals and make it to the finals after a decade-long sort of slump in international basketball for this country was an enormous thing. So if the United yeah. States wants and, and to like send what, 22 million people, 11 million people, what's the population of Serbia? 7 million, I said. Oh, my God. If the United LeBron's States- like, you know what? I not really interested in playing the Olympics anymore. But LeBron, this is a really big deal in Serbia. Sold. (laughs) So if we want to send 22-year-olds to the Olympics and the World Cup, go for it. But please don't impose our rules on the rest of the world. If Tony Parker wants to play for France, if Manu Ginobili wants to keep playing for Argentina until he's 60, that is their decision and their country's basketball federation's decisions. If Dirk Nowitzki decides to play in the next Olympics, good for Dirk Nowitzki. But when we lose the gold medal because we sent some 19-year-olds in 2018 or 2000. 2020 to one of these tournaments, you know exactly what will happen. History will repeat itself and every star will be back playing for the United States. And I think these guys like playing for the United States. They look like they were having fun winning the gold medal. Well, everybody likes to win the gold medal. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> Nobody likes to lose to Puerto Rico by 19. So we're, we're at this place right now. And also they right could now. be told that everyone back home was watching them and cheering. They didn't know. They didn't know that Pesca As much as we didn't know what time the game started, they didn't know that we didn't know. I, I think Mason Plumley heard that Mike Pesca cut his cord and was not watching. <laughs> that's, that's why he didn't play as well in this tournament. Yeah. The Spurs hired uh, Italian coaching le- legend Torre Messina as an assistant. The Cavs hired David Blatt, who's been coaching in the EuroLeague Did you forever. say Andre Blatch? Because we didn't even get to Andre Blatch. We did not get to Andre Blatch. But we're at this interesting point Dominant. where the respect for the level of the international game has sort of simultaneously never been lower and also never been higher. I think that American basketball coaches and you know Jerry Colangelo, who built USA Basketball, Mike Krzyzewski, I think they have enough respect for um, these teams and for the coaches that run them, that they have imposed this system that ensures that the United States will be prepared for these tournaments and will destroy these teams that they respect so much. It's only it's the cycle that you've been talking about of the respect and lack of respect. We're at like kind of the top of the cycle, and you can feel it kind of inching downwards to where they'll be forced to respect them again. But with these coaches coming in to the NBA, with you know the European camps and, you know, the increased interest in international players. A lot of the guys in this tournament are going to be coming into the NBA this year and were just drafted. I don't think there's ever going to be a case where the U.S. thinks it can just roll the ball out. If we go down to like, you know, a 22-year-old, I don't know if anybody will be surprised if we would lose under that circumstance. It might still come back to like, oh, we, we can't let this happen again because this is America's game. But I think if it was like 22 and under U.S. team versus like 30 Versus Ang- Angola's senior team. Or versus like, you know, 30-year-old Spanish dudes, then I don't think we'd be surprised. And also the U.S. could have totally lost in this tournament if Spain hadn't, uh, you know, lost to France in the quarterfinals. It would be a different conversation, but... This is where we are. This is what this is what happened. We can only talk about what happened, Stefan. Know that you're trying to imagine a fantasy world, but just get your head out of the clouds, Fatsis. Come on. All right, moving on to our final segment of the day. We're going to talk about the Breaking Madden series, SB Nations. John Boyce is the man behind it. The premise is, uh, well, let's talk about what happened in the first episode of Breaking Madden. It'll it'll set the scene. John used Madden's player creator to build a five foot 400 pound video game man named Clarence Beef Tank and installed him as the starting quarterback of the Jacksonville Jaguars. In his first game, Beef Tank, which is spelled in all capital letters, at Mr. Beef Tank's request, set a fake NFL record with 346 rushing yards and leading the Jaguars to a 44-21 video game defeat. In subsequent episodes of Breaking Madden, John turned off the offsides rule, created the greatest punter who ever lived, protected Peyton Manning with an offensive line of 160-pound twig people. And this year's first Breaking Madden, John tried to configure the game so that Texans rookie Jadavian Clowney could break the NFL's career sack record in a single game. Joining us now is SB Nation writer and destroyer of video game worlds, John Boyce, also one of the hosts of the Punt Brothers podcast and the proprietor of John's Sandwich Shop on Twitter. John, welcome to Hang Up and Listen. Josh, I am delighted to be here. Thank you very much. I will preface this conversation, John, by saying that Breaking Madden is one of my very favorite things on Earth. There are a few things in the world that make me giggle more. I might giggle during this 
segment, I'm going to warn you. And now my goal, I think our, all of our goals, is to ruin Breaking Madden by overanalyzing it. Breaking it. Breaking, breaking Madden. Let's do it. Wait, hold on. This just in. We have breaking, breaking, breaking Madden news. <laughs> <laughs> my first attempt over at intellectualize. Here we go. I played some of the first Madden games back in the early 90s for Sega Genesis. And part of the game's mythology, as I remember it, is that it's super realistic. John Madden imparted his wisdom to all these nerds who made the game. It was the closest that fans could get to an accurate football simulation. At the same time, you could injure your opponents on purpose, and an ambulance would then charge on the field and run over people. And this was everyone's favorite part of Madden, was Mm -hmm. the goofy runaway ambulance. So, John, as the Pauline Kale to your Brian De Palma, I declare that you, sir, are that runaway ambulance in human form. Please respond. Well, I would be delighted to uh, be anthropomorphized as that ambulance. Um, uh, that was the, the the effect that I always tried to get whenever I played Madden 93 as a little kid, because you could get the ambulance usually once per game, but once every, like, 100 games, the ambulance would actually run over the dude. And that was just, like, that was the holy grail. That was what I was always going for. Run over the actual injured party as opposed to the runaway ambulance who just didn't care about the other players on the field. That's the best, right? That's what you're saying? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and then the, the crowd would be like, oh. So your idea in creating this series was to try to take this game that is just hyper-realistic, the graphics are amazing, and just completely screw with it and show the world that it is not as realistic as it thinks it is? Is that is that the concept? Kind of. I mean, you know, honestly... The Madden games are very good. Like I, I mock them and I expose like the you know the flaws, the, the glitches. But like those glitches weren't really ever supposed to be found because no reasonable human being would ever like try to expose them. The game itself is is well made, and I think it's a tribute to it that that everything works as well as it does. It's a miracle that they can have twenty two dudes who run into each other all of the time into a game and it can look anything close to reality. I I think that's a credit to the game. That's right. Like if I took a similar well-crafted work, uh, say where the wild things are and poured the amount of attention into it as you do Madden, I could find some like teeth inconsistencies with the big rooster looking beast, something like that. I see what you're saying. Yeah, and it's actually, I feel equally silly. Just as you would feel dumb, like, deconstructing a children's book, I mm-hmm. feel kind of like like an adult child, like, deconstructing this game. Like, this is something 15-year-olds should be doing. I'm 31 years old. This is, this is ridiculous. No, 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 no. No, it's not ridiculous <laughs> at all. No, it's not. No, because what you're doing is, you know, again, without over-intellectualizing this, but you're subverting the notion of video games, as you said, this is what a 15-year-old should be doing, but you're also subverting the NFL. I mean, you are destroying the notion that this is a game that is played with fairness and with reason, and it is a real competition, which is what most people that play video games, of course, pretend that it is. I mean, there's real skill involved, and there are competitions, and you want to be the best at this. I mean, you are completely fucking with all of our notions of of competition here, both the real in the NFL and the fantasy in terms of playing these games. And that's what makes this so much fun. You can do anything to these people. This is like our fantasy come to life, screwing with the NFL. 
Right, because that's something the NFL itself um, is way too nervous and like afraid to do. Like compared to even even stacked against every other American sports league, the NFL is so afraid of being looked at in any other way than exactly how it wants to be looked at. It's got this really finely curated image. It's even down to like the video game itself, where it's like you know they they give exclusive license to Electronic Arts to make this game because they just like they're very very hell-bent on making everything about the NFL look exactly how they want it. And very reactive, too. I mean, what, what elements have been taken out of Madden? The stuff that makes it look like players get brain injuries. Yeah, sure. Like they, you know, even as recently as I'm not positive about this, but I think it was like Madden 04 or Madden 05, as recently as then, you could pop a guy so hard that his like helmet fell off, which they did away with uh, a couple of years ago. And they also in franchise mode, if your team did very, very poorly, fans would start, they would stop coming to the game. So like you'd see empty seats. And uh, now you don't see that. The even games would actually be seat- blacked out. So you couldn't even watch the game that you were playing. <laughs> You'd have to, it would tell you to go up, to get up and turn the TV off. In Madden, can you goad Muhammad Wilkerson into taking a stupid penalty, thus depriving the team of the heart of its defense? Or is that just more of a real-life NFL thing? Yeah, that's more of a real-life thing. Um, They've actually, it's funny, um, Madden has kind of gotten in the opposite direction in that way uh, as the real NFL. Because, like, last night you saw, you know, 40 billion trillion penalties. uh, It went out of the box. Uh, this year's Madden, there are almost no penalties because they realize, like, hey, that's not a fun video game experience. People don't want to, like, sit there and watch strange men throw laundry. To get in a little bit in, into the minutia of your experiment, um, Madden has these kind of universal dials where you can turn everything up and turn everything down. And then there are the individual player dials where you can give somebody maximum awareness, 99 out of 99, or give them a zero awareness and wouldn't that just be stifling wouldn't just that just cause depression they just sit in the corner aware of everything worried worrying about the uyghurs in china i'm sorry go ahead well it seems like the most fun that you can have in these experiments is pitting people who have everything set to zero versus people who have everything set to 99 and that's like the the beef tank thing that's with peyton manning's offensive line being made up of incredibly tiny people who have no awareness of what's going on. And then you get these incredible images where the game engine is trying to grapple with this horrible universe that you've imagined with a night with a 99 smashing into a zero. I think that um, my only gesture of like charity, I guess, is to lower their awareness ratings because they should not understand what's happening. to them. That would be cruel, <laughs> absolutely cruel if they did. Because, like, with it at zero, you can tell it, they, they're sort of expressionless. They don't ever, like, make any, like, good or bad gestures. They never celebrate. And, like, sometimes they'll just straight up run off the field. Like, they'll just, like, get up in the middle of a play and just, like, walk away. <laughs> and isn't that, isn't that the real joy in what you've done is seeing what is buried in the program itself? There was that tiny Washington football player who looked up at the screen last week in some expression of bewilderment or joy or terror. I couldn't quite decipher what it was. And at the end of the Super Bowl, what happened? There was like a, a some weird image, some sort of Masonic cult totem <laughs> showed up in the Illuminati. middle of the field. 
Actually, totem is the closest uh, I've come to actually naming it. It's been months and months, and I still like can't figure out what to call it. But basically, what happened is I set all the Seahawks uh, in last year's Super Bowl episode to 99. I made them all seven feet tall. I made all the Broncos five feet tall and 160 pounds, just like tiny little baby men. And uh, I was trying to to uh, produce a score that was somewhere in the neighborhood of like a thousand to nothing, which mathematically that's totally possible in a 60 minute game. And it stopped counting once I got to 255, which like threw everything awry somehow. I don't know how, but like once I got to about 400 points, you were counting these manually at that point. Yes, I was a tally marks with a marker on like some cardboard actually is what I was doing. (laughs) And (laughs) I, uh, I turned penalties off. This is really important to note because despite all the penalties being turned off, uh, the referee blew the whistle and like called somebody for a false start, which, and I was like, nobody called a false start, but that's, that didn't happen. So I hit pause. I looked at the replay. All the players were gone. Everybody was, there was nobody on the field. And I saw neatly placed on the 50 yard line was like this fetus that was like half, it was like curled up and it was half Seahawks, half Broncos with like a half-formed face. Ooh. And I swear to God, like I, if I didn't screen cap it, I would have thought I was like hallucinating it or something. It was the oddest thing I've ever seen in video games. It looked like ever. something that I, that we dissected in senior year high school in, in, in rat well, biology. The weird thing was, was, like was that a, on the sideline, David Lynch was pouring an ice bucket on his head. <laughs> Uh, can we talk a little bit about the possibilities going forward and what, you know, this year you, you've sort of stated that your goal is to sort of tinker with the game slightly differently, not be quite as extreme, sort of absurd as you were last year. Well, that's in part kind of uh, protecting myself a little bit because I am honestly uncertain of like how much there is to actually break like in the game itself, like how many glitches to expose. There is the phenomenon of the tiny Titan that briefly appeared, uh, the one foot tall player who they mistakenly put in there, uh, who is awesome. But, you know, it's possible that I might just have to focus on like, hey, is it possible to get 500 sacks in one game? Is it possible to throw... 300 interceptions in that in one game what does it look like what do you have to do and then along the way i'm, I'm still gonna have plenty of five foot tall men just completely destroying like people you know one percent their size can i make a request sure can we see how many field goals can be kicked in one game <laughs> we can see how many could be missed in one game because mm-hmm. made seems too happy how about doinked how about doinked in and doinked out Oh, okay. No, it could be like an Aussie rules football style where you can see how many you can actually, like the goal is to actually hit the goal post. Wait, if you were allowing Jadevian Clowney to try to get 201 sacks in a single game, why can't you see how many made field goals? Why do you insist on bringing down the kicker instead of elevating him, John? You know what? Uh, The game would let me make Jadevian Clowney a kicker. (laughs) <laughs> the, the game actually every player has like their stats for everything if god forbid you wanted to do that Jadeveon Clowney is like a 12 and kicking out of 99 yeah I can throw him out there and see what he does can you drop kick off a uh, punt no you can't uh, fuck I, I hate Madden I know because Flutie that's like Flutie's dream he finally got to do it that one time well and, he dropped uh, he dropped he dropped, he dropped kick point. from the line of scrimmage I'm talking about you do the thing where you fair catch and then immediately drop kick and then the other team gets it from that fair situation catch, actual, fair catch, yeah actual NFL rule I did not know that I was completely unaware of that rule yeah 
the 165-pound twig people who protected Manning, did you, do you think they'd get better if you took them to the junction and weeded out the weak ones and had Bear Bryant yell at them and not give them water for a while? Is there a way to simulate that? Well, the thing is, you know, in the game's canon, they all of these people were, like, taken up to the mountain to die. The problem is they just wandered back. <laughs> and I think we'll perhaps end our segment there on that appropriate, sad, disturbing image. I'm actually wondering whether the EA people haven't programmed anything in there as a test to you, John, to see if you can uncover it, whether there's another fetal totem out there. That's what keeps him Bizarre. keeps him motivated through these yeah. five hour games where just spiking the ball <laughs> repeatedly. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, they apparently in like some um, some show they uh, they they showed Breaking Madden to some of the producers of Breaking Madden and to Cam Newton and some of those guys, and they were just like, "Well, yeah, we can't really get mad. I mean, that is our game." So you know what you've done? I, it hit me. You have restored. I don't know if the word's restored. You have injected whimsy into football, and football of all parts of American life is the perhaps most devoid of whimsy. I mean, baseball is the most whimsical of sports. So it's whimsy plus football is breaking Madden. Good job. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah, I feel the same way. It's especially lately. There's been like zero whimsy and there's been like very little to, to not be sad about. So it's a fun release from that. Well, thank you for saving football and by virtue of saving football America. Uh, John Boyce is one of the hosts of the punt brothers podcast a writer for SB Nation. You can follow him on Twitter and harangue him with your requests to be one of the twig people in Breaking Madden. John, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you all so much. All right, it's now time for Afterball. And what else could we name our Afterballs than beef tanks? There's not even a need to discuss. Five foot tall, 400 pounds, trucking dudes, set the NFL record for rushing yards in a game, then broke it. Clarence Beef Tank, Jaguars quarterback. Mike Pesca, what is your beef tank? I just want to present to you a grab bag of NFL silliness. Week one, I did note that Jim Nance said when he asked Derek Carr, hey, who's your favorite Raiders quarterback? And this is Jim Nance presenting that anecdote. Did he say Stabler? Did he say Plunkett? Did he say George Blanda? No, he said Rich Gannon. And everyone marveled at the fact that a guy wouldn't name a bunch of players who stopped playing before he was alive. I thought that was kind of stupid. Stupid commentation from Jets Week 2. Just Trent Green advising the Packers that they needed to go for it, went down 21-3 to based on the premise. Their defense has not shown that they could stop the Jets all day. Yeah. Maybe the tapes or the history of the Jets would indicate that the Jets are, in fact, stoppable. From that point forward, the Jets only scored three more points. Another bit of uh, NFL idiocy. I enjoyed this very terrible tweet, and I did retweet it with the headline. This is a stupid tweet. Here it comes from SI underscore NFL. The Bills and Texans are 2-0. and The Saints and Chiefs are 0-2. What a difference a year makes. Now, the reason I said it's a stupid tweet is... It's two weeks. The year doesn't make a difference. Schedules change. But the really extra special reason that that's a stupid tweet is that the Texans started the season 2-0 last year also. So that's a really stupid tweet. And the last thing I'd like to do is not to call Joe Flacco stupid for the following comments, but to compliment Joe Flacco and to put out there that maybe Joe Flacco, who's seen as a pretty good quarterback who got a big contract because he won the Super Bowl and maybe doesn't deserve it, I think he might be much more sagacious than we ever gave him credit for, for among other things, strongly implying that he 
doesn't know what the word sagacious means, when he says, stop with this whole idea of complexity, where football players, here he is being interviewed on the NFL Network after the Ravens beat the Steelers Thursday night. Um, you know, I don't find NFL offenses extremely tough to pick up. I mean, NFL players have to be able to run them, so they can't be too tough. So we came in here. Just telling the truth. I mean, I'm, I'm not. I'm, I'm not. I'm not any kind of engineer or anything. I'm just a football player. So I think we did a great job coming in here in the off season, uh, putting everything together, and you know, working through training camp. Didn't you have a center from Harvard though? I mean, you had a center from Harvard. There's yeah, some, but some... I mean, he's still a football player at Harvard. I don't know what that says. We have a fullback from Harvard right now too. I'm not. I'm not too impressed by him. So I like that. I like Flacco demystifying the idea of being football. Players players. The Harvard guys in question are uh, Matt Burke, who is the center, and his fullback who went to school is Kyle Juszczyk. I think it's Juszczyk. He has an interesting, almost uh, impossible to pronounce name, J-U-S-Z-C-Z-Y-K. I thought that Zach Ertz might have not set the record for most Z's in a football player's name. I know that that didn't happen, but he does start his name with a Z and end his name with the Z. But this, I think, Kyle Juszczyk has more Z's in close connection to each other, also in the vicinity of a Y, two Y's in the total name. Crazy name, Kyle Juszczyk. I wonder Juszczyk. if uh, they have a, a name. Juszczyk. Juszczyk. <laughs> You're just going to be saying that in the background throughout yeah, the remaining afterballs. I wonder if they call him iChart, or do you not call players with a lot of consonants in their names iChart anymore? Is that not a thing? There's a Scrabble player who, who's known as iChart. There's a baseball player who's known as Scrabble. So it all works out. Last name is Ripchinsky. A lot of, lot of Z's, yeah. You're not familiar with Joey Pizzazz, though. He was a 1950s running back on the... Uh, in the Cleveland, the American Football Conference, the All-American Football Conference. He was really penalized by the NFL when they outlawed jazz hands. He was out of the league immediately. <laughs> That's right. When he was not allowed to wear his capizios, it really hurt his game. <laughs> Pizzazzi's capizios kiboshed. Yeah, he later, re- he later reinvented himself in an upstart league as Joey Razmataz. <laughs> but it did not take. <laughs> Stephen, and then later on, they say that a Joey Huzzah was playing in the Western Leagues, but that was only the stuff of rumor. That's okay. He went on to become mayor of New York. Pizzan or pizzazz. Pizzan or pizzazz. Uh, Stefan, what is your beef tank? Well, as discussed, the United States trounced Serbia 129-92 in the finals of the FIBA World Cup. But despair not Serbia because there is no doubt that you had the ass-kickingest gold medalist FIBA World Cup tribute anthem of any nation. It is called Igraj i Pobedi, Play and Win, and it was written and sung by the Belgrade hip-hop group THC La Familia. Let us attend. I am pumped. Apparently the Serbian team was pumped too. Igraji Pobedi was released a couple of months before the World Cup. I found it in an enthusiastic tweet from a Serbian-American academic and writer named Anna Mitric. She put me in touch with Sasha Osmo, a sports reporter for B92 in Belgrade, who told me that people all over Serbia have been singing the song and also that the players thanked THCF and said the song has been an inspiration for them. THCF is for real. They've produced two albums an eponymous debut in 2007, and Maimun Idzo, Monkey Idzo, 
in 2009. Their other credits include opening for 50 Cent in Belgrade and apparently being huge basketball fans, which isn't unusual in basketball-obsessed Serbia, which is sent to the NBA, among others, Vlade Divac, Peja Stojakovic, Vladimir Radmanovic, and the legendary Darko Milicic. So what were all these Serbian fans singing? Well, my friend Jelena Ketsmanovic translated the lyrics for me. When you were small, you watched B-Ball, watching gold, shining like the glossy floor. Igraji Pobedi opens. There's some stuff about being inspired by the current coach, who was a good three-point shooter, training hard, how all of Serbia is behind the team. Training hard. Serbia is behind the team. It's much better than that. One line warns about bad refereeing, which seems very Balkan. But even how that won't stop Serbia. The ball is hot. You stay cool. They are trying to sell their tricks. That won't go because you've been raised here. You're racing toward the hoop, toward victory. You don't matter. Serbia is calling. Sasha Osmo, the reporter, told me that the song took off partly because after a decade-long international basketball slump, Serbia did so well at the World Cup. They squeaked out of the group phase and then beat Greece, Brazil, and France en route to the finals. Sasha and Anna Mitrich both noted that these sorts of anthems are very common in Serbia. They've had them for volleyball and soccer. And of course, anthems are popular in other European countries for all sorts of European-ish sports. Anna is a hang-up listener, apparently a close one because she remembered that I love team handball. So she forwarded me the handball theme songs for the 2012 Men's European Championship, which was in Serbia, which was titled in English and Serbian handball fantasy when the handball lands in serbia it's in the cities and suburbia fantasy. all the world is one big family living in the it's handball so fantasy <laughs> actually saving a shot is a handball fantasy but i'm with anna she is partial to igraj abro serbio play courageously serbia which was the peppy trumpety theme song for the 2013 women's world handball championship also hosted by Serbia. Please let us listen to that and fade out. I will say that the Wikipedia page on Serbian hip-hop has the following entries. Early roots, first wave, second wave, third wave, diaspora artists, and I will read the last sentence under the diaspora artists. In Vienna, Ortax, a group made up of young Serbian youths, has grown in popularity within the German hip-hop scene. The group is characterized by its incorporation of Serbian slang and an anti-NATO political stance. Josh, what's your beef tank? There's going to be a lot of audio in this week's After Balls. I like it. You got it's audio, an audio buffet. I do. This is going to be the first and what will probably not be a continuing series called Things You May Have Missed If You Are Not an Obsessive LSU Tigers Football Fan. <laughs> Item number one, as I'm sure Mike Stefan and Mike Folo have noted, commentators are eager to use the name of whatever sport they're broadcasting as a modifier. For example, that is a fantastic golf shot. You have mm-hmm. to execute a football move, football move and so forth. During the LSU-Louisiana-Monroe game on Saturday night, ESPNU 
color commentator Anthony Becht had a football as adjective moment that was so spectacular that I could not get this phrase out of my head all weekend. To set the scene, the LSU defense had just stopped a Louisiana Monroe runner in the backfield. The first voice you'll hear belongs to play-by-play guy Clay Matvick. And then Becht chimes in with his analysis. Let's roll that tape. It's going to be a loss on the play of a couple yards, second down and 12. And that's one thing you can't do if you're ULM on first and second down is lose football yards. So second and 12 is an ideal situation for this LSU defense. You see man-to-man across the board forcing them to make a play. That was great also because he tells them what they can't Can't do. do Can't lose lose football yards. All right, item number two. I think you guys assessed that accurately. I'm glad you appreciated it as much as I did. LSU coach Les Miles, he's known for bizarre elocution style. Some of his favorite catchphrases are, I like us, in reference to his team, and has a want, as in describing freshman Leonard Fournette as a player who has a want and thirst to achieve. Anytime Miles says something weird in a press conference or at halftime, it gets on SportsCenter. But his stylings on the locally broadcast weekly coaches show inside LSU football are the real underground Les Miles shit. I've got these amazing Les Miles mixtapes. You guys would not believe what's on here. On the first episode of Inside LSU Football this season, which I may be the only person in the world who watched, there was a segment where Miles talked about a special LSU night that the Astros held at their stadium. For some reason, Les took this as an opportunity to hold forth on baseball statistical revolution. I'm going to play two clips for you. First up, here is Les Miles on pitch tracking technology. Uh, we found out that uh, every ball was documented. Every every pitched ball from the mound to the plate in the what is Major League Baseball yeah. is documented and and categorized. And this one is a slider; it breaks this far. It's a fastball; it does. And what they're doing is they're deciding and figuring out what really makes a pitch a difficult ball to hit. Yeah. And uh, they they, uh, they make a couple great points. They, they, they live in outside-the-box decision-making that, you know, that they, you know, put a, a formula and a, in a calculation to. And I, I really enjoyed it. A couple of great points. A couple of great points. All right, now the coup de grace. This is Les Miles, and it'll be clear within a few seconds that I am not making this up. I have the audio evidence. Here's Les Miles explaining what OPS is. It, it, you know, the idea that they have an on-base percentage and a slugging percentage and they make it one statistic, I mean, that to me, you know, kind of says that, you know, that guy gets on base and when he doesn't, when he's not just getting on base, he's hitting the ball long. So, you know, that, that, that combination, that statistic, Maybe something that everybody should look at. Who was the longtime LSU baseball coach? Kent Babineau. What was his name? <laughs> Kent Babineau. Skip Bertman. Skip Bertman. He's rolling over in his bed or his grave. Or I love whatever. that the hypothetical uh, LSU baseball coach is named Kent Babineau. Though <laughs> that guy sounds awesome. Not only when he's not getting on base, he's sitting a long way. Except in the case of the guy with a low OPS, <laughs> not so much. <laughs> it only well, calculates high OPSs, Mike. Right. Yeah. He has a want to calculate a high OPS. Uh, we'd love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to Hang Up and Listen in iTunes. You can find us at itunes.com slash slate podcasts. When you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook. Facebook.com slash hang up and listen is the URL. Our intern is Chris Laskowski. Our producer is Mike Volo. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Andy Bowers. Remember Zomo Beatty. And thanks for listening. 